Hi, this is Alistair Jenks standing in for Alison Sheridan on the NoSillaCast podcast hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is arguably Sunday the 7th of July 2019 and this is certainly show number 739. In this week's show, I'll describe using RetroBatch for batch image processing. Sandy Foster reviews the Airfly Bluetooth audio adapter, and I follow that with a review of my new Bluetooth add-on for my car from GTA Car Kits. Next, I'll talk about using Pixelmator Photo for photo editing on the go. Then Caleb Fong reviews the powerful web learning tool at glitch.com. And finally, I'll detail how I published photos while on holiday without compromising my standards. So, let's get started. I've been playing around with computer graphics since before you could reasonably display a photo on a computer screen. I've grown my knowledge of how to work with graphics as the technology itself has grown and, as a result of this, there aren't many graphical tasks I don't at least have some idea of how to tackle. It also means I have a lot of tools in my graphics toolbox. I just had a look at the applications folder on my Mac and over 10% of the applications, 17 of them, are what I would classify as graphics applications. That doesn't include a few command line tools I have installed. In my repertoire, I have everything from simple image browsers to full-featured professional editors like Affinity Photo and Affinity Designer. I have a tool for every job, but that doesn't mean there aren't better tools for some jobs, better ways of solving some problems. I decided recently that I had a problem which needed to be solved more effectively, Most of the photos I publish online these days start off as 30 megabyte RAW files. For a long time, my process was to import these into Adobe Lightroom for keywording, selection, processing and publishing. Yes, I had my entire workflow built into a single tool. That's what a professional photo management application can do. But I decided I no longer wanted to use Adobe Lightroom. Cost was a significant factor, but its adobiness, the threat of price increases, and a reinvention of the software as Lightroom CC, a cloud-focused cut-down experience that I expect will become to Lightroom Classic what Apple Photos became to Aperture, also combined to make me throw in the towel on Adobe. Fortunately, at about the right time, Skylum Software launched Luminar 3, which promised to be a Lightroom competitor. I say promised there's still a significant chunk of that promise to be delivered. Luminar's photo library management is, let's say, nascent. But I have fallen in love with the processing engine which allows me to get better results quicker than with Lightroom. I've reviewed Luminar 3 over on the Essential Apple blog. Link in the show notes. Luminar's immaturity leaves me with a few gaps, and the one I'm going to finally talk about now is the penultimate step of my process, getting a processed photo ready to upload to Flickr. In Luminar, I have a giant 14-bit RAW file up to 6,000 pixels wide that looks beautiful. On Flickr, I want a 3,200 pixel wide JPEG that has my standard watermarks on it. I also want to put the finished image into my Apple Photos library at a smaller size optimised for a Retina iPad screen. And sometimes I want a much smaller version, which needs a slightly larger watermark that I can put on social media platforms. I can absolutely do all of that in Affinity Photo, but doing it consistently and repeatedly is a chore. The last batch I processed included over 200 images. This is a job for automation. 
Enter Retrobatch from Flying Meat. The company with the crazy name may be familiar to you as publishers of the Acorn graphics application. Retrobatch is a batch image processing tool. Its job is to take a bunch of images as input, do stuff to them and output something, usually new image files. The application window is quite similar to Rogue Amoeba's Audio Hijack in that you place nodes on a canvas and then join them up to create a workflow. A simple use case might include the nodes Read Images, Scale and Write Images. To read images, Retrobatch can use a named folder, ask at runtime, or you can even save the workflow as a droplet and just drop your images on the icon whenever you need to. The scale node lets you define fixed dimensions or a longest or shortest side dimension, either in pixels or a percentage of the original. The write images node lets you pick a destination folder, file naming rule, image type, for example JPEG, and a few other options. However, the real power of Retrobatch is the huge choice of nodes you have to put between the read and write nodes. There are 53 of these in the basic version of the software and 23 more in the pro version. Some of the basic ones include scaling, colour correction, borders, watermarks, both text and graphics, metadata changes, trim, drop shadow and blur. Some of the additional pro nodes include PDF Maker, Change Bit Depth, Run Script and Classify Images. That last one uses machine learning to analyse the content of your images, including the ability to add your own core ML models. I've included a picture of my main workflow in the blog post over at podfeet.com. You will see after the initial read folder node, there is a set general metadata node. This adds my Creative Commons license to the copyright metadata field. Then the workflow splits in two. The bottom branch places large text watermarks, my web branding and the Creative Commons license symbols, scales to alongside of 1024 pixels and writes out a JPEG image with a blog suffix. The upper branch adds the same watermarks but proportionally smaller, then splits again to create a JPEG sized at 3200 pixels on the long side, suffixed with Flickr, and another JPEG sized at 1536 pixels on the long side, suffixed with photos. When I am processing a whole bunch of photos in Luminar, I simply export them all at full size into a staging folder, then launch this workflow. I can then immediately upload all the Flickr optimized versions to Flickr. I also have a slight variation on this workflow saved as a droplet on my desktop. The only difference is it outputs to the desktop. This means I can drag and drop one or many images onto the icon and very quickly get the optimized versions right there on my desktop without needing to actually launch the Retrobatch application and load the workflow. My workflow barely scratches the surface of what Retrobatch can do. In addition to the extra nodes like AppleScript and PDF and Photoshop file tools, the Pro version also has a JavaScript capability which adds incredible power to the tool, enabling you to create and distribute your own nodes. Retrobatch isn't for everyone, but if you find you sometimes need to do the same basic manipulations to a bunch of images, and especially, like me, if you have a process like this that you repeatedly use, then give Retrobatch a look. You can get Retrobatch directly from flyingmeat.com for $29.99 US dollars for the standard version or $49.99 US dollars for the pro version. There's a page on the website which explains the differences between the versions. Next up we have no silicastaway Sandy Foster to review a gadget that I think a lot of people might find useful. 
Hello, I'm Sandy Foster, and this is a review of the AirFly, made by 12 South, an amazing little device. It's available at the 12 South site or at Amazon. Be sure to use Allison's affiliate link if you decide to shop there. At each place, the AirFly sells for $40. First, what problem does the AirFly solve? Well, how many times have you been on an airplane and wrestled with the wires from your earphones or earbuds so that you could hear the in-flight entertainment? How many times has your blanket, tray table, or pillow caught on the cord and yanked the earbuds from your ears? Or how many times have you been at the gym and found it difficult to hear the TV there or other audio from your treadmill? The AirFly can eliminate each of these frustrations. The AirFly works with AirPods or other wireless earbuds or wireless headphones. There's a list of compatible devices on the 12 South site. The AirFly is tiny. It measures 1.8 inches tall, 1.3 inches wide, and 0.39 inches thick, weighing only 55 ounces. It comes with the headphone cable, USB charging cable, user guide, and carrying pouch. That pouch holds all of the other bits and pieces and measures only two and three quarter inches by four and five eighths inches, closing with a drawstring. It fits neatly into a pocket or a woman's purse, and it won't weigh you down either as it weighs under two ounces. The 12 South people say that the range of the AirFly is up to 33 feet, and I believe it. I could hear even when I popped into the airline's restroom. So how does it work? I had bought it to use on an international flight from Las Vegas to Venice, and it was flawless. When the battery began to fizzle, I simply attached a portable charger and continued to listen with no problem at all. The charge lasts up to eight hours, and recharging takes only about two hours. Pairing with my AirPods was a breeze. It's a three-step process. First, hold the AirFly button for up to 10 seconds until an amber light flashes. Second, Leaving AirPods in their case, open the lid and press the pairing button on the case until the light flashes white. Third, the light in the AirPod case turns green and the AirFly light, excuse me, AirFly light goes white for 10 seconds. You're done. There's only one little flaw that I found. On the flight home again, the port to plug in the AirFly was on the top of the seat's arm rather than on the entertainment screen. That meant that when a clumsy passenger stumbled against my aisle seat, the plug on the headphone cable was bent, rendering the airfly inoperable and leaving me wrestling with ear pods and their cord. I knew I could get an, a replacement cable somewhere anyway, but I couldn't find one that's nice and short, as is the original one, so that it wouldn't drag on the floor or be inconveniently in the way of the tray or something. The original cord is only about 7 inches from tip to tip. I've written to 12 South for help, and at the time I'm writing this, I'm awaiting their reply. I do think that an improvement to the little cable might be to have one end finish in an L-shaped connector rather than the straight one that's currently on both ends. And here's an update. After the weekend had passed, I heard from 12 South, and they're replacing my cable at no charge, even though the damage was not their fault. Not only that, but the replacement cable is already in the mail to me. I really couldn't ask for better service, which is all the more impressive when you consider that the support team is made up of only two people. Those two obviously have a great working relationship as well as longevity in the company. 
Tracy's been there for almost eight years and Bridget for ten and a half. It shows. All in all, I highly recommend the Airfly. While I admit to some envy of Allison driving around in a brand new Tesla, I'm still happy with my new car. I say new. It was new when I got it 13 years ago. I've adhered to the manufacturer's servicing program almost perfectly, including having the servicing done by them, and it has barely given me any problems in the 100,000 kilometres I have driven it. Being a 2006 mid-trim model, it came with an in-dash 6CD changer and an auxiliary input jack and even steering wheel audio controls. In 2006, that was pretty nifty, but now my music lives on my iPhone or even in the cloud. CDs are so clunky in 2019, and even if I wanted to listen to the radio, I don't, the aerial is busted. So, for the last five years or so, I've been using a Belkin Aircast Auto, which is functional, but really quite annoying. When I'm driving at speed, there's enough road noise to mask the hum and occasional other noises the unit emits through my speakers, but in traffic, it is quite audible. One of those noises sounds like a turbo whine that rises with engine RPMs. Entertaining, but less than ideal. The microphone works, but callers have trouble hearing me. So does Siri. A couple of years ago, I asked the dealership where I have my car serviced whether they could fit an aftermarket Bluetooth unit. Sure, they said. How much, I asked. Around $800, they said. I'll let you know. Yikes. I dropped the idea and soldiered on with the aircast. Until now. A while back, I decided to research the market to see what was available and came across GTA Car Kits. This company sells a huge range of kits, each engineered to specific vehicles. They cover 14 different car makers, many models from each and many different model years, some I found going as far back as 2002. About a month ago, I finally decided to go ahead and order one. I entered the details for my car and was presented with two choices, a wired solution that would give iPod control with an optional Bluetooth extension module, or the pure Bluetooth solution, which also includes a wired aux option. I went for the pure Bluetooth model as that was the whole point of my purchase. Before I purchased the unit, I was able to watch the installation video that GTA have on their site, so I was reasonably comfortable that I would be able to install it myself. The unit arrived less than a week after I placed my order, then I set to work installing it. I had the installation video on my iPhone to guide me through the install process. Between the visual of an actual installation and the comprehensive commentary, there were almost no surprises during my install. I found it useful to be able to see the location and angle of the clips on the fittings I had to remove, so I wasn't too afraid of applying the necessary force when it became necessary. The big surprise came when I removed the head unit from the dash and found the expansion port on the back already had something plugged into it. I was crestfallen for a moment before I realised what it likely was. Unlike the car in the video, mine has a factory-fitted power socket, also known as a cigarette lighter socket, and an aux port in the centre armrest. I spied five wires emanating from the unexpected plug and deduced these would correspond to a three-wire stereo signal and two-wire power. I elected to remove it and carry on. 
the rest of the install went to plan, though at one point I looked down and noticed blood on my finger. I have no idea which part of the dash I cut it on. After a quick wash-up, I put the final pieces back in place, and it was time to test it. The unit takes advantage of an extended mode, which I believe is intended for an external CD changer unit. After turning on the power and pressing a few buttons, I was able to see GTA Car Kit appear as an available Bluetooth device on my iPhone. I was in business. The kit promised CD quality sound and the ability to control the audio on the phone using the car's own buttons. It all worked as it should. At least, it did during that first test. The next time I got in the car, I was expecting the pairing to be automatic, and it sort of was. The radio beeped, and a moment later, my iPhone began playing audio. Out of its own speaker. I tried unpairing and repairing, and all worked as it should again. The next time, the same thing happened. The phone was seeing the Bluetooth and pairing with it, as evidenced in the Bluetooth settings, but was not sending the audio over that connection. Out of my first eight starts, it worked properly twice. I was already emailing GTA about the unexpected plug and so asked about this behaviour. Maurizio responded by asking me for a few details of my specific stereo and then offered a possible solution. Quit all background audio apps on the phone, as this had fixed the problem for some other customers. He said there is a problem with the Bluetooth drivers in iOS 12 and that Apple are working on the issue. I quit every single app on my phone and the next two times the phone properly paired straight away. Since then it has failed again as I have already described, so now I either quit the apps before starting or do the dance of the Bluetooth connection. It's a bit of a pain when I'm doing a lot of short journeys, but hopefully Apple will sort it out in a future iOS release. Overall, I am very happy with my GTA car kit. I had not considered the loss of the factory aux and power, but the kit provides its own aux, which I fitted, and also an optional charging cable, which I may add later. The difference is that the factory items are both sockets flush-fitted inside the centre console, whereas the GTA has a cable ending and a plug for both. For the aux, that is better as no additional cable is required. However, for the power, I will have to choose to install a lightning cable, with the possibility I may later need to swap it out for USB-C for future phones. I'm loving the crisp audio sans any hums or fake turbo whine, and the direct control I now have from my steering wheel. I can even answer and hang up phone calls from the steering wheel. Did I mention the kit comes with a microphone? I've yet to test calling, but Siri does hear me, I think, more clearly. With Siri, though, who can tell, right? I've also been impressed with the support from GTA. I've exchanged a number of emails with Maurizio on the topics I've mentioned, and he has always been really helpful. My GTA Pure Bluetooth module costs $139 direct from GTA. The wired unit costs $84.99. I checked to see if Amazon sell them and found some that were very similar in appearance but did not include the microphone nor aux cable. In any case, I would recommend buying direct from GTA for their clear ordering process to ensure you get the model suitable for your vehicle and for their excellent support. Pixelmator Photo for iPad was launched rather fortuitously just before I went on holiday. It turned out to be almost the perfect app for processing raw photos from my DSLR camera while on the go. 
I have described the complete process I used in another blog post on podfeet.com. There are some key features of Pixelmator Photo that stand out for me over other iOS photo apps. Pixelmator Photo can import images from your iCloud photo library, which is nothing unusual. But when you're done processing your image, you can either save it back to the original as an edit, allowing for photos native revert to original capability, or as a new photo. For more power, Pixelmator Photo lets you use the iOS file picker, and this is incredibly versatile, as you can open and save images with any service that integrates with the Files app, such as Dropbox, OneDrive, or iCloud Drive itself. With Pixelmator Photo's share sheet item, you can open a picture directly from almost anywhere. Pixelmator Photo handles raw images using iOS's built-in support, so it can understand images from over 500 different camera models. You can then seamlessly and quickly perform non-destructive processing on the image with the full dynamic range that RAW files provide. In my use of the app, there was no lag of any kind when adjusting sliders on a 24-megapixel 14-bit RAW file, which weighs in over 30 megabytes in size. As a test, I opened one such RAW file using the File Explorer application's network connection over Wi-Fi to my Mac to fetch the file off an external SSD. I had the photo in front of me and editable in 8 seconds. If you're not sure what sliders to tweak, you can ask Pixelmator Photo to use its built-in machine learning capability to have a go at improving your photo. A single tap on the main toolbar ML button sets lightness, white balance, hue and saturation, selective colour and colour balance in one go. Or you can selectively apply machine learning to any of these within those tools. If you're not happy with the result, you can either undo the machine learning or use that as a starting point. The rest of Pixelmator Photo is quite like other photo processing apps, though it is clearly aimed at exactly that, photo processing. If you open the adjustments panel, it contains a series of blocks for white balance, hue and saturation, lightness, color balance, selective color, levels, curves, replace color, black and white, color monochrome, sepia, fade, channel mixer, invert, sharpen and grain. Each of these blocks has one or more sliders and in some cases additional controls. The range and quality of these panels is high. It's closer to Lightroom or Aperture than Apple's Photos. I did miss a couple of features that Pixelmator Photo does not have, yet. There is no noise reduction and no vignette tool. I've mentioned this in the Pixelmator forums and am told both are being worked on and are coming soon. With those two features added, Pixelmator Photo will be a one-stop shop for me for photo processing on the go. Other tools include a crop, straighten and perspective tool and a healing tool. The cropping tool offers a machine learning option which is always interesting to try, otherwise you can crop to any of the usual array of preset aspect ratios or completely freeform. There's also a three colour histogram in the adjustments pane to help you with balancing your image. Finally, there are 49 preset looks you can apply to your photos to get an instant result. These are grouped under black and white, cinematic, classic films, modern films, landscape, vintage, urban night and Pixelmator Pro. If all of these controls overwhelm you and you end up with a bad looking photo, there's the undo button or even the nuclear option of the revert button to take you right back to the start. For all the power packed into Pixelmator Photo, I found the interface to be largely intuitive though it's worth reading through the online help which is easily accessible within the app. 
After hearing about all of this power and quality, you'd be forgiven for thinking Pixelmator Photo must be expensive. It's available in the App Store for only $4.99. Finally, it's worth noting that the release of iOS 13 later this year will allow Pixelmator Photo to directly access photos either on an SD card or attached camera using one of Apple's camera connection kits. Next, Caleb Fong reviews Glitch.com. I described it as a web learning tool, but it is so much more. I'll let Caleb explain. Good day, Alistair and fellow Nestle Castaways. Geek is real, a.k.a. Caleb here, with, uh, well, I was just, originally was going to compare CodePen to Glitch, but then I discovered that CodePen has a feature I didn't realize was there. I'm going to have to reevaluate my comparison. So today I'm just going to focus on talking about Glitch.com. But I'm getting ahead of myself. What is the problem to be solved? Namely, it's web hosting. Server husbandry is a full-time job at some companies, and it's not likely it's part of your skill set yet. But you want to jump in with the programming by stealth with Allison and Bart, but you're just a hobbyist and you don't need or want the full force of an Amazon Web Services instance or a DigitalOcean droplet or even one of the managed hosting options like A2 or DreamHost. You're just looking for a little spot to put up your fun little web experiments. Well, fun web experiments is exactly what Glitch was built for. Let's jump in and see how they accomplish making a task that almost anyone can enjoy. On the front page, there are a bunch of existing and noteworthy projects, along with categories bursting with starting points or finished apps. In the upper right-hand corner, there is the new project and sign-in buttons. You can establish an account with an email, Facebook, Google, or GitHub account. I recommend GitHub for reasons that I think I'll detail a little further on. But let's get stuck in. Let's go our own way, and let's get a feel for the system. Once you've clicked the new project, you'll be given several starting points. Hello, web page. The most basic of HTML projects, web projects, just HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. No more, no less. Hello Express, which is a Node app uh, ready and waiting. Or Hello SQLite, which is the aforementioned Node app with an SQLite built-in already set up to go. There's also Clone from Git Repo, but that's a more advanced option that I'll get on at a later occasion. For now, let's hop into the Hello Web Page project. The system will load, and, and you will see the primary interface. If you spent any time in a contemporary code editor like VS Code or Sublime Text, this will look very familiar. There's a menu bar across the top, and to the left below that is a list of available files, and to the right is a code editor area. Now, I want to overwhelm you, dear listener, and I'm not going to read out each individual setting in this overview. But here is what I believe is the essential information that should allow you to get up and running as quickly as possible. On the top left of the menu bar is the Project Properties button. And when you're looking at the interface, you will see the name of the project there. It has the general information and sharing options for your project. There's also the Show button, which has two ways to view your project the new window, slash tab, and next to the editor. 
When you select next to the other editor, it will put your preview next to the editor area, giving your interface more of a REPL style. Now we have the lay of the land. What do we do with this? Well, basically anything we want. Start putting your HTML content together, paint it with the CSS, and then select a view from show. The web app will automatically save and update if you have that option selected. So jump in and write up that PBS homework you've been putting off. You can also ask for help from the Glitch community uh, using their Spiffy Live help tool, which allows others to work on your project at the same time you are. Yeah, there's more than one cursor. It's kind of like the old Google Docs uh, demo where they had several people all editing the same doc at the same time. Or you can just leave the question open and someone can write a fix that you can accept at a later date. Now, if that workflow sounds vaguely like GitHub, you're right. Each instance is also a Git repo. This is one of the reasons I was nudging you towards GitHub. If slash when your project becomes popular, or you just want to deploy it to a production-level server, you can. Now, most of the cloud services don't offer direct import, but they almost all speak Git. So you can use GitHub to deploy to a more robust server instance. This is part of the more advanced magic that makes Glitch more than a cut above most of these services in this genre. Finally, I need to mention one of the coolest parts of Glitch. It's one of the reasons why I think this is a near-perfect complement to all the arts lessons, be they taming the terminal or programming by stealth. It's then in the Tools menu, which is the button in the lower part of the file browser. There are two items that are going to be the essentials, logs and full-page console. Notice how it's called logs and not just some other uh, output name. Yeah, that's because it's a full Ubuntu container behind all this nice UI. And you can confirm that by typing into the console area of the logs tab, which comes up from the bottom of the screen, or by popping into the full page console. Either way, you'll greet it with a, greet it with a bash shell and a lot of Linux goodness. Now, this is a lot to offer for free, but Glitch thought of that too. Each instance automatically sleeps if it hasn't been touched or refreshed for five minutes or if you've been running the instance for more than 12 hours. There is also a space limit of 200 megabytes with some specific ex exceptions detailed in their FAQ. They also have notes about a paid plan in the future, but for now it's just a rather brilliant free site. In conclusion, there's a, and there's a whole lot to unpack here, but Glitch seems like an excellent solution for many of the issues around budding devs that might want to build a personal use server. So now, go forth and code. Thanks for that, Caleb. That is quite an impressive service to cover the gamut from mucking around with a snippet of HTML all the way up to productionizing a web app. In April, I spent a week exploring Singapore, followed by three days in Melbourne, Australia, and I took my big boy DSLR camera along to capture some of the sights. I also took a few other things with a view to solving a problem. How to take some of the 30 megabyte RAW files from my camera and publish them to Flickr with the same quality and standard as if I was at home. This is my story of how that turned out. 
To summarize, I was able to publish a handful of photos successfully, but the process was far from straightforward. I'm glad I mostly figured it out before I left home, as there were still some problems I had to deal with in a hotel room. I could have taken my 2016 13-inch MacBook Pro, but I didn't want the weight and bulk of it while travelling, as it would have to be in my carry-on bag, and that was already tipping the scales at 6 kilograms in its flight configuration. I would also have to concern myself with securing it while away. It seemed like overkill to process some photos. I should be able to do it with an iPad. My new iPad Mini would be the perfect travel device at a slim 300 grams compared to the MacBook's 1.3 kilograms. The first hurdle was how to get the photos to the iPad. I did not want the photos to end up in iCloud Photos. Apple's camera connection kit insists on doing this, but I had other ideas. I have previously reviewed the Western Digital My Passport Pro wireless hard drive for the podcast. This device made it pretty easy as I could dump my camera's memory card directly onto the hard drive and use its built-in wireless network and the WD MyCloud app to review the photos in full screen from my iPad. I also found it very easy to directly share a photo from MyCloud to a photo processing app. But which one? When working out this process before my trip, I had settled on Affinity Photo, even though it is far, far more capable than I needed. However, just before I left home, Pixelmator Photo was released, and this looked to be a much better match for my needs. Someone described it to me as Luminar for iOS, which immediately had me interested as Luminar is my current desktop software choice. I've reviewed Pixelmator Photo separately on podfeet.com. Importantly, it allows opening and saving of photos from the iOS file picker, meaning the photos do not have to be in your photos library. Unfortunately, Pixelmator Photo lacked two features I wanted, noise reduction and vignette. I still had Affinity Photo to fall back on when these were needed, and getting the photos published to Flickr was, I thought, going to be easy using the iOS Flickr app's share sheet icon. More on that a little later, but these were essentially all of the pieces I would need. Each time I got back to my hotel room, I fished the My Passport drive out of the room safe and turned it on. Once powered up, I inserted the SD card taken from the camera and waited for the lights to indicate the copy had completed. I feel it important to note here that, in addition to providing easy access to my photos, this was most crucially a backup copy of my photos that I was not carrying around with my camera. Next, I had the iPad join the My Passport Drive's Wi-Fi and open the WD MyCloud app, in which I could navigate to my latest photos. By viewing the photos full screen on the iPad, I chose one I wanted to work with and shared it directly to Pixelmator Photo. In Pixelmator Photo, I tweaked exposure, vibrance, white balance and a few other things as needed. When done with those, I exported the result as a 16-bit TIFF to a folder within the On This iPad storage area. Next, I opened Affinity Photo and loaded the image from that folder. This would have been easier had Affinity Photo had an available share sheet option from Pixelmator Photo, but it does not. Affinity Photo let me tame the noise, needed on some night shots, and add a vignette if required. Again, the result was saved, this time to an iCloud folder as a full-sized 16-bit TIFF file. This is where I got a little clever. The folder I output the final version of the image to was a very specific folder in my iCloud drive. At home, 
my Mac Mini was running Hazel, which was watching that folder. When an image appeared in the folder, it would run a retrobatch script to add my standard watermarks and convert to a JPEG of standard quality and dimensions, placing it back in a subfolder in iCloud. In my hotel room, once I had saved out the TIFF file to iCloud, I then opened the Files app and watched it upload, then disappear, then the new file appear in the subfolder. It was rather cool to watch, knowing there was a Mac 8,526 kilometers away, doing my bidding in real time. For more information on how Retrobatch works, see my separate review also on podfeet.com. With the JPEG now Flickr ready, there was one final hurdle to overcome. Despite being able to select the Flickr app to share the JPEG file with from the Files app, it steadfastly would not upload the photo, even though it went through all the naming and tagging process. I discovered that I had to upload images from the Photos library, so there was an extra step of saving the JPEG file there first and then uploading to Flickr. So, with the My Passport drive, my iPad, iCloud storage, Pixelmator photo, Affinity photo and the Flickr app, not to mention my slave Mac Mini at home, I was able to get an image from my DSLR uploaded to Flickr while in my hotel room without sacrificing quality or changing my standards. It's not a simple process, though it would be much more streamlined if Pixelmator Photo had the two missing features, vignette and noise reduction, and if Flickr could cope with being given a file instead of a photo. There will be some of you yelling at your browsers or podcast players about now saying I am making things hard for myself. Why not just use the camera connection kit and iOS photos and it will be a lot simpler? That's true, but that way I'd have to choose which photos to import based purely on small thumbnails or, worse, import them all and delete those I don't want. I keep all of my photos on my Mac hard drive, but only the best are polished and published and only those end up in my iCloud Photos library. Even with only the wanted images in the Photos library, the tools offered by the Photos app are rudimentary compared to what Pixelmator Photo offers even its first version. Even with only the wanted images in the Photos library, the tools offered by the Photos app are rudimentary compared to what Pixelmator Photo offers even in its first version, and primitive compared to Affinity Photo. What I have described is almost certainly not going to be useful to anyone else in exactly the same form, but hopefully it will give you some inspiration to put together your own processes to suit your own needs. You can check out my separate reviews of the Western Digital My Passport, Pixelmator Photo and Retrobatch on podfeet.com. Finally, I have a caveat. I wrote this story before WWDC 2019. However, as I now come to record and publish it, it is clear that the newly announced but yet to ship iPadOS 13 changes things a little. When iPadOS 13 is launched later this year, it will be possible using either version of Apple's camera connection kit to directly open a photo from the SD card or camera itself into an app such as Pixelmator Photo. Well, that's going to wind things up for this week. If you'd like to find me online, simply head over to zkarj.me or follow me on Twitter at zkarj. If you want to send in your dumb questions, comments and suggestions, you can email alison at alison at podfeet.com, follow her on Twitter at podfeet, and if you want to join the fun of the live show, Alison and Steve will return you to your regularly scheduled broadcast next week. 
head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday night at 5pm Pacific Time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.